This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, I Remember, A Story of Self-Healing. And the author, Cassandra Whitfield. And Cassandra joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Cassandra. Hello, Steve. Well, it's really great to have you with us. Uh, This is what you call fictional self-help. So we're going to enter into a world of really uh, some some tough situations with mentally disturbed people, right? Mm-hmm. And how that's affected you and uh, as, right. as the author. And, uh, well, you know, people might think this is exciting and adventurous, uh, the kind of career that you have had, but at the same time, it can take its toll. That's really... What this book is really about is that, as you put it, a story of self-healing. Mm-hmm. That's correct. That's correct. But it's also the experience of being human. We we all can get ourselves in situations or careers where, you know, we're exposed to to dangerous situations. So I think you know, like police and lots of nurses can identify. I think with this story. Right. Right. Well, before we get into some of the things that you're that you're going to be describing and its effect on a, a human being, as you just so well explained, tell us about your background and uh, why you wrote the book. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm a nurse. Uh, I've worked in mental health for almost 30 years now, and I'm also uh, a Reiki practitioner. So I. I started writing this book originally, uh, it's funny because it was my girlfriends who were kind of pushing me to write a book, and they were, you know, encouraging me kind of to go along the Fifty Shades of Grey kind of story because I was a single woman who was, uh, you know, my girlfriends were living vicariously through me and my stories of dating. So when I started writing this novel, I called it Precious Memoirs, and once you read it, you'll understand what precious memoirs mean, but so it was that kind of story. I called it erotic satire. I never kind of follow these, these genres, but, and then I got stuck and I knew that there was something more to say, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. So I left the book alone for a while, six months or so. And at the same time, I'd also been undergoing a lot of uh, medical testing, quite extensive testing for what I thought was a cardiac condition. But as it turns out, it wasn't a cardiac condition at all. It was psychological. And again, as a nurse who's worked in mental health for as long as I have worked in mental health, I was, I was shocked at myself that, uh, you know, that I hadn't, I hadn't recognized my own symptoms and, you know, that it had manifested into these physical symptoms that I, you know, I really, really believe that I had a heart condition. So it was very interesting for me. So, you know, and it's also my belief that all disease, disease is caused by our imbalance and denial of it. So 
I continued to ignore my symptoms until it became, you know, severe anxiety, also known as post-traumatic stress disorder. So I, I got to the point where, you know, it hurt to move. It hurt to think. It hurt to feel. I just wanted to curl up in a corner and shut down. I, I had no choice but to take some time off of work. So I didn't want to take pills. I, uh, I just wanted to get better. I really thought that there was, there was more to it than just taking a pill. So I locked myself in my house and I set my intention to heal myself. And, uh, you know, anxiety is about being fearful. So, you know, I started my healing by asking myself what I was afraid of. And I knew that I, I had a very serious, a very dangerous situation in my life uh, to the extent that I was actually afraid for my life. I had somebody who was, you know, quite fixated on trying to kill me. So it made perfect sense that I was fearful. But, you know, again, I started writing and, and mostly start, it was a, it turned into a journal where I was taking notes as to what was exacerbating my symptoms. And the more I wrote, the more I realized that this very scary situation wasn't the only thing that I was afraid of. I had a lifetime of trauma that I, was, I hadn't really dealt with. So, you know, those aspects of I remember are much darker and a little bit more suspenseful than the precious memoirs portion of it. But uh, the more that I healed, the more that I understood that my mess was the message. So as it turns out, I remember is a fictional story based on my experiences as a woman, as a nurse, and as my own patient who healed herself. So, as you say, I remember, but you go f- as far back as you can remember where it all started. Absolutely. Which I think we all have to, at some point in our life, we all have to reconcile our childhood, even if it's great stuff. We have to kind of figure out where all of our garbage kind of comes from, right? We have to, we have to get to that point in our life where we, we have to figure out what our stories are about, what the, what the basis is. So. so you grew up in a home that really was very stressful and abusive. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and again, I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know, we, we either walk around in this experience believing that we're a victim of it or we take something out of it and say, you know, I learned a lesson and that's behind me. I'm not going back there. So that's, like I say, we all have to reconcile that kind of stuff. It's, uh, you know, obviously as you go back, as far as you could remember, then we're going back to uh, making some decisions that weren't very good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, we do that kind of stuff. We, we, we're exactly where we're supposed to be and we do it with the the tools that we have at the time. And if we, you know, we keep looking backwards and saying, I should have, I could have, you know, that, again, is bad energy that we bring to ourselves. We need to just kind of, you know, forgive ourselves for being in that situation, not learning it when we could have learned it, and, and let it go because we're always exactly where we're supposed to be. Well, we are a product of our experiences, and we, Absolutely. you know, we seem to, and we tend to stay on the same road, don't we? We it's hard to get off the road that we're on. Right, 
Right. Well, familiarity can be our <laughs> our biggest problem, really, because that's that's our ego, that's our experience telling us, you know, to stay here, be safe, don't go. Don't go try that because remember the last time we got hurt when we did this. You know, it's that kind of stuff that holds us back. And we like familiarity. Absolutely, we do. It's what we know. So this road, did it just make sense for you to become a nurse? Did that just make sense to you? You know, I don't, I don't really remember what took me down that road at the time. I don't know. I had lots of options. But uh, I don't know what took me down that road, actually. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, being around so much uh, abuse and and seeing your father and mother the way they were and, and others along the way, it seems like you just wanted to reach out and help others. Well, I definitely have that theme in my life. You know, my morning prayer when I wake up is, how can I help? So I definitely have that theme of being the helping, helping person. So. so what is energy healing? Energy healing, Reiki uh, specifically, is universal life force. It's, it's the energy of the universe. It's the vibrational energy. It's everything that's going on. It's, it's, it's unconditional love. We all vibrate at a frequency. Everything vibrates. That's the, you know, the language of the universe. That's, you know, the rock vibrates as does the plant, as does the fish, as does the human. And we're, you know, those laws of attraction, all that conversation of quantum consciousness. We're vibrating and we're sending out energy into the universe. If we have a low vibration, we attract that kind of low vibrational emotion, energy, situation, reality to us. So it's really, really important that we, we fix that, those kind of wounds that are keeping us in a low vibrational state, telling us that we're actually miserable or we're less than or whatever our conversation is. We really have to take a look at that so we can clear it out. And, and we do that with love. Because, again, it's about love and forgiveness to say, I am so much bigger than that. I am a piece of this greater, you know, I am a drop. I am a spark of consciousness. I, my being is, is more than this, this story that I'm telling myself. So, so as Reiki you... is really the cleaning up, you know, and the support of those kind of wounds that we carry in our body, those energy wounds that we carry. So as we go through life, we all, we meet people along the way, and these people that have a, well, they become part of your life. Um, as you look back, uh, again, you, you talk about, well, it was supposed to work out that way uh, because that's where you were at, I guess, meeting folks that, did you feel all along the way people were taking advantage of you, or were you just as uh, much playing the part of it? Yeah, no, I absolutely, I was a participant. Even when it was going on, I, I don't know if I really felt so much of the victim energy because I, I kind of felt that I was a participant. But one of the one of the conversations in my book is about Ho'oponopono, which is a Hawaiian healing method by Dr. Len, I believe his name is. And in Ho'oponopono, we take 
full responsibility for everything that's occurred in our life. So if we do that, I can look back on the stories of my childhood, every story, everything, every minute of my life, I've actually created through my own thoughts because everything is created twice, once in our thought and then once in our reality. So I created all those things for some reason. So either I was creating that out of the energy that I was putting out because I was in low vibration or else it's something that I've brought to myself from my higher self that is, it's, it's an opportunity for me to expand as a human being. It's an opportunity for me to learn about being connected to everybody else and you know, the, big, the big, big picture. So how do you deal how do you deal with a person a patient who really is focused on killing you? I mean that's what he talks about all the time. Mhm. Well, you know that patient that we're talking about is you know at the very far end of the mental illness spectrum. This is a very very sick person, you know, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Medications aren't working for him. He remains psychotic. And, you know, he has this voice in his head. He can't tell the difference between reality and what's not real. So this voice is in his head telling him that, and that's all he knows is to follow. So, I mean, the only way we really can protect him, that's my job, is to protect him from himself. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm going to be the victim, I have to protect him by making sure that he can't act out on that because he has no choice. He believes that that's what he needs to do. And the time we have left, the short time we have left, uh, I want you to just talk about these seven things, these seven responsibilities of being a human being that you uh, espouse. Okay. Well, first, I, I think it's important that we all understand that there's there's two components to being a human being, like we talked about before. The human part of us is our ego. So it's our experiences, and, you know, it's, it's our conditioned self. It's the stories that we've repeated so many times that, you know, like you said before, we are exactly who we believe ourselves to be. And if we want to take it a little a step further, we can even say that because of that, we receive exactly what we believe we deserve. So... You know, people, when they get their head around that, that's, that's, that's a big statement, you know. But the being part of us knows that this is not true. This is our, you know, our true self, our authentic self, right? The being, this is the part of us that knows that we are part of something so great that we don't even have the words to describe, you know, the essence of the beauty and the peace and the joy of it. It's just, it's the eternal, limitless part of us that's always perfect. And it's the part of us that's pushing us to remember what we truly are. So, you know, we have a responsibility to do some things here as human beings. And uh, some of them are pretty obvious, like the the first thing I've written down, or that, you know, we have a responsibility to nourish ourselves. So, you know, we nourish our body with water and food. And we, we cannot ignore that we are what we eat. We really have to start taking, you know, responsibility for stuff that we're putting into our bodies. If everything that you're eating is coming from a can or a box or a styrofoam container, 
then, you know, don't be surprised when your body is reflecting, you know, that malnourishment. And also, you know, we have a responsibility to nourish our mind or our computer. So, you know, we need stimulating conversation, music, new skills, all that kind of stuff, right? It's, the, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If we're, all, we're sitting in front of the TV all the time or we're, you know, watching violence or we're listening to, you know, whatever it is, then we're telling our bodies, our bodies do not understand that this isn't real, you know, our computers. This is, this is what we're telling our bodies, that our reality is this thing. Uh, you know, we need to get proper rest. This is when our body and our mind rejuvenate. This is also a time when we connect with the energy of the universe so we don't realize that it's even happening. Our immune system, you know, functions better. So when we're restless and, you know, when we're suffering from sleep apnea or when we're having frequent nightmares, we need to pay attention to that because those are the signs that, you know, we're unbalanced. We have a responsibility to, you know, take care of our own personal hygiene, which seems obvious again, but for some of us it's problematic. And especially in here, I'm a big advocate of flossing. I really wish people would floss their teeth every day. It's so important, you know, it's about the bacteria that enters your body and the plaque and, you know, the heart disease. It's all it's all about flossing, right? And then I think we have a responsibility to be sexy. Even if we're not actually, you know, it's not necessarily about the act. It's about doing something every day. Even if it's exercising, it's something that makes you feel sexy because we are sexual beings. That's part of being a human, right? And then I think everyone really needs to take some time and learn how to meditate. It's through meditation that we learn how to recognize our inner voice, our true self. And it's also where we find the voice of the universe or the divine God, whatever you want to call it. Everybody should be making time for this. It's so important. First thing in the morning when you wake up in your bed, or when you go to sleep at night, there's a couple of meditations that are included in the book that I just found helpful so people can start. But, you know, if you don't want to listen to music or sit quiet, there's lots and lots of guided medica- meditations on the Internet, on YouTube. You can, you know, find what appeals to you and what works for you and start there. And then as human beings, we have a responsibility to create. We are creative beings, and, and our creation is what our gift is to the world. We, uh, we're all different in this area, and this is the only area, because your, your creation is different than my creation. I believe my creation is this book. That's what I'm supposed to be doing, but your creation is whatever, whatever makes you jump out of bed in the morning that you're absolutely in love with. And if you're going to get paid for it, then even better. But you have to have that kind of stuff in your life where you, you know, this is this is the driving force. Right. Because right, we have to emote, emote from our dreams. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's the energy that we have to put out there. We have to be madly in love with something. The last part is yeah, it's loving. We have to we have to love ourselves, and then we can love our neighbor. And part of that whole love is forgiveness and you know it's really quite that simple well that's all very well put and this book i remember 
A Story of Self-Healing is a fictional guidebook as we've been listening to the author, Cassandra Whitfield. Cassandra, tell us how do we get your book? Uh, it's online at Barnes Noble, iUniverse, and Amazon. Very, very good. We appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve. My pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our author today is T.L. Hoke, who has written a novel titled Chasing Normal, a Chip Fullerton, Annie Smith sports novel. I welcome to the program Tom Hoke. Thank you, sir. Thank you. This is your first in a series. Uh, you, you weren't always an author. Tell a little bit about your background. Why did this book come into print? Well, I've worn several hats. Uh, I worked for a Fortune 500 company. Then I was a golf professional for 15 years and finally went into education. I was a teacher. And while teaching and coaching, I came up with the idea that uh, there was a, a real lack of quality sports books for girls. And so that's, that's what inspired me. Share a little background into the title, Chasing Normal. That is an interesting question. How does it play out in your novel? Well, the title... I Googled the title before I sent my manuscript in, and I got nothing. And then once the book was done, there are two other books called Chasing Normal. The other two are romance novels. But uh, the base for the, the title was uh, Annie Smith is a girl from Arkansas who gets a chance to start over in Texas. Her and her mom move to Texas, and she decides that she wants to be a normal high school girl. She had a little trouble back in Arkansas. She's a tremendous athlete. And between the, her teammates and the press, she decided she had enough of that. So I'm just going to be an average high school student, which for her is not possible. Because of her skills or because, because of her personality? Of her skills, yeah. She, ah. It doesn't take long for them to figure out she is something very special. And Chip Fullerton, is that a guy or a girl? Chip is a girl. Her, her real name is Melinda. But she's real short, so uh, her friends started calling her microchip when she was in elementary school, and that just kind of stuck. Great premise for a book. This is sports-oriented because of your sports background. What is the primary sports they're both involved in? Well, the, the first book is basketball, and the second book, they, they go from the basketball court right to the softball diamond. And I, I'll just stick with those two. 
you know, you have to write about what you know, Jay. And I've had a lot of girls come up and say, would you write a volleyball book? And even though both my daughters played college volleyball, I don't know enough about it. So I decided to stick with basketball and softball. Who's your target audience? This book appears to be geared towards high school, junior high kids. Is this uh, a correct evaluation of your focus? Yes, it is. But I'll tell you what's surprising was to have a lot of people in their their 70s and 80s come up to me and say, I really enjoyed your book. I did not have them in mind when I wrote it, but but that was kind of gratifying. And Chasing Normal came out while I was still teaching. I was in my last year. And it was a pretty cool thing to see the football players walking around the hallway carrying my book. And I stopped one of them and said, he's about 6'4", 250. I said, you know, uh, that's a girl's sports book you've got there. He said, I don't care. It's a sports book, and, and I, I read all sports books I can get my hands on, and I like it. So well, it's kind of a plus. And he might have said, I like girls, too, maybe. I don't know. Well, that, that's true. Uh, that's uh, not uncommon in high school sports with uh, guys. The process of writing your book, a lot of authors will take and sit down and just because of inspiration start writing. Others will sit and write an outline of their characters, go into depth on on uh, what they're about to do and what their background is. How did you approach the writing process? I, I think mine was was a little unique. I did use an outline, but the whole book was based around one of the middle chapters, the chapter called The Ferguson Game. And uh, I had that idea in my head, kicked it around for a bit, and then wrote the book around that particular game. And it didn't take long for the story to, to develop. And how long did it take to actually get it completed where you were happy with it? Well, it, this was rather strange. I, I, it took me 10 years, but I, it wasn't 10 you know, solid years. I, I wrote it and I tabled it for about six years until I picked up a book uh, from one of my students' desk, and it said New York Times bestseller on it. And I said, you like these? He goes, I read every one this guy's written. So I checked one out of the library. I read it in about 35, 40 minutes, and I thought, wow, this, this is a New York Times bestseller. I think I can do a little better. And so I walked upstairs and told my wife, I'm going to finish mine. She said, just like that? And I said, just like that. And that's how it came about. Have you always wanted to be an author? No, not necessarily. I I wrote a lot. You know, I wrote short stories for people, but I never pictured myself until I actually worked on this book or started working on it that that I would be a published author. And now that's my fourth book I'm working on right now. Incredible. And the first book that you remember as a child or young adult that really impressed you? Oh, man, I grew up reading sci-fi fantasy. So it'd be the Tarzan series by Edgar Rice Burroughs and uh, books like that. I had two brothers, and we all read the same thing, so we passed them back and forth. Tom, have you received any life advice that has helped shape your life and has stuck with you? Well, you know, persistence is huge. And a lot of people who say they can't accomplish something just tend to give up. And, you know, if you're persistent and you believe in yourself, uh, good things tend to happen. Well, there's going to be a lot of failures along the way, though, that's for sure. But you got to get back up and just Keep slugging away. I was watching the biography of a well-known comedian who is deceased, but for 10 years he was a siding salesman, wrote jokes, put them in a duffel bag, and just kept going after it, even though uh, he was not successful. And eventually he became a well-known and top-honored comedian. So persistence is a major process, a major factor in being successful. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes it just takes a while for things to ha- for people to realize what you have to offer, I guess.
Are there underlying stories or underlying themes? Did you have a moral to this story, or was it just for fun? Uh, I did have a moral to the story. When I wrote it, I decided once the story started to develop, I said, you know, you need to have some very subtle underlying themes here because you don't want to preach or lecture to to, the high school audience because they turn you off pretty quick. Uh, So I wanted to tell an interesting story, of course, but I wanted to offer some instruction uh, on the sport that's featured in the book. I wanted to pass on some positive life skills just the way I've done it in the classroom for years. You know, the kids need that. Some of them already know it, but a lot of them don't. So I, I passed on those positive life skills, and I wanted to give young people a story that was inspirational without the violence and the language that a lot of books for the younger crowd tend to have. I, I don't know why, but they do. I, I think the author thinks it'll, they'll sell more books that way. But I, I don't write those kind of books. So. Did you write any scenes in this book that will stand out to the reader? <laughs> I did. Uh, I wrote several. And one thing gave me the idea of what I wanted to do for the second book. Uh, as you mentioned, there are three main characters, D.A., Chip, and Jenny. And Chip is definitely a little character. She fashions a voodoo doll to make it look like her coach because she's frustrated with the way the coach is treating B.A. And she's just kind of messing around, but she, she buys a doll and she kind of shapes it and she dresses up like the coach. Well, they have a scrimmage at practice, and they talk to head coach into you know, playing in the scrimmage. And then right at the end, I don't want to give too much away, but at the end of the scrimmage, coach has a medical problem, which leads Chip to believe that it's her fault. And she thinks she's going to go to prison for it. Uh, actually, it wasn't her fault. But after writing that chapter, I was looking at it, and I said, you know what? That was so much fun. I think Chip will be the main character in the second book. And the second book's called Discovering Balance, and she is the main character. That's an interesting sideline in itself. Is that a major portion of your book, or is it an interesting side story? I say that's an interesting sideline, but, but it's, it's insightful into Chip's character and, and how she views things and how she reacts to things, because she, she does quite a lot for a high school girl. She's, she's always got something going on. She has a boyfriend named Luke, and he, uh, between the two of them, they're always working on some sort of plan or some sort of scheme, what their friends call it. And, and but that keeps life interesting for them. Between sports and, and her projects, uh, she, she's about as busy as she needs to be. Tell me how you'd introduce this book to someone in a couple of sentences, maybe a short paragraph. Oh, boy. Uh, Chasing Normal is a sports story. It's got action, mystery. Uh, I wrote instruction into it, as I mentioned. I, I wrote music into it. Uh, not much modern, but classic rock and roll. And, and it's a high school book, so I wrote a little bit of romance. Uh, the characters are anything but average, and quite often they're hilarious, especially in Chip's case. Uh, and, you know, that they have several problems to solve and the way they go about solving their problems in addition to playing the sport that they're in, I think makes for an exciting story. And I, I, I wrote a lot of action. It's, it's almost 300 pages, and there's dialogue and a lot of action going on. Not a lot of description as to what kind of day it was or what kind of room they're standing in. It's, it was just bang, bang, bang. You know, they're, they're high school kids, and so they're, uh, a couple of them are pretty hyper, and they like to do things and not sit around. So that, that, that's the kind of story that I wrote. And describe for my, my listeners the the town that you created in Texas. It's, is it based on a real town, or is it one that was well, in your imagination? A couple mysteries in the book, and the town is one of them. I, I changed, it was actually supposed to be Weston, but I found out there is a Weston, Texas, so I, I didn't want to do that. So I changed it to Reston, 
And it's actually a town, but it's not called that. But I leave a couple, oh, I'd say little hints in there to describe about where the town is and something about the town's history. And if you read it and do a little research, you'll figure out what town it is. And to be honest, it's a town my older brother lives in. Ah, I wondered whether you had any real experience with Texas since you live in Illinois. Well, you know, I spent two years uh, living in Arlington, right between Dallas and Fort Worth. Know it well. Absolutely do. Tell me, what makes this book unlike other books that are geared towards teens? Well, I use the same method in the book that I used to use when I was teaching. And if a student came into my class and had a science fiction book uh, in their hand, I would start talking science fiction to them. It could have been sports, music, drama. You know, the gearheads would come in. I'd start talking classic cars with them. But it gave me an opportunity to connect with my students. And quite often they would talk to me not just outside the classroom, but outside the school. They'd say, you know, hey, Mr. Hoke, how are you doing? And I felt that they would learn better if, if we had some kind of connection. So that's why I put the music, the history, the instruction, and the story, um, all without being too preachy, as, as my daughters would say. But I tried to make that connection with my readers. I tried to offer them something that they would, you know, kind of close the book and say, oh, I really like that. And he was, He's not just writing about, in this case, basketball. Uh, he, he's writing about a little bit of everything. So I try to touch on that. Uh, it's obviously one-sided when you're writing, you know, and not there in person, but the principle's the same. And I think all these ingredients and the sports instruction that I slip in uh, from time to time, they set the book apart from what you would normally see. And what's the time frame? What period of time does this story take it's place? It's in modern times. I, I don't try to date it. So I don't mention too many current events that are going. In fact, I don't think I mention any because, you know, I, I want it to last. I want, I have five grandchildren now. I want their era to, to read it and say, wow, this still applies. So uh, uh, I leave that time frame open. And were there challenges in writing this? This was your first real novel, although you had been working on it for 10 years. Were there challenges in getting this to completion? Well, yeah, I... I table to think for quite a while because I thought, well, it's good, but you know, I, a lot of authors don't think it's good enough. And like a lot of other authors, I consider myself a storyteller. You know, I'm not writing a classic here. I know that. But uh, I'm trying to write you know, an entertaining story that young people and, and older people actually would like. But I guess the challenge is to bring it all together and to, to make it make sense. You know, it has to be smooth. It has to flow. And you can't say something in Chapter 8 where the reader would scratch their head and like, I'm not even sure what he's talking about here. I mean, I know because I'm writing it, but you need to make sure the reader knows also. So I, I'd say that was the biggest challenge. The book is titled Chasing Normal, our author T.L. Hoke. A Chip Fullerton, Annie Smith sports novel, the first in a series. Thank you, Tom, for joining me today. Where can our listeners get copies of your book? Well, uh, if you want an actual physical copy... The least expensive way is just to go to my website, tlhopebooks.com, and uh, you can order a, a signed copy. Uh, if you want an ebook, I would go to amazon.com or to the publisher, iUniverse. And both of, the, of them have the ebook for sale. Thank you for sharing the background story into Chasing Normal, and our author's last name is spelled H O C H. Thank you, Tom, for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. Our author has been T.L. Hoke. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our author today is J.B. Hamilton Queen, who's written a fictional novel titled Dagger in the Cup. I welcome from Florida, J.B. Hamilton Queen. J.B., welcome. Thank you, Jay. Good to be here. An ambitious novel from my perspective, only because I like short little stories, and yours is uh, 278 pages, which is not a long read. But tell me the background of your story. You, just to explain to our listeners, you grew up in, uh, was it Kentucky or Kentucky. in Kentucky, Kentucky as a child? Mm-hmm. And so some of this story has its foundation in your youth. Yes, my roots are in Kentucky, and I don't really consider myself a total southern writer, but I write a lot from my heritage and my roots and growing up on a farm in Kentucky, and it just seems to uh, gel with me. But my my mother always told me that my grandmother, great-grandmother was a Cherokee Indian. And how I started to write the book was I began to do research into the Cherokee in Kentucky at that time. And I knew that the land, well, it was full of arrowheads because I worked in the tobacco fields and cornfields, and I was always finding those. So as I began my research into uh, the Cherokee, I came up on an article, and it, uh, the first paragraph said that um, it was illegal to be an Indian in Elmhurst County, Virginia, in uh, 1924. Wow. So, yeah, that got me started. So I, um, I started, and, it, and then in that very same paragraph, it discussed uh, the racial purity law. And from 1924 to 1967 in Amherst County, Virginia, it was illegal, like I said, to be an Indian in Amherst County. But this racial purity law it criminalized interracial marriage and set up a caste system based on race, and I was hooked. I saw lots of story there, and uh, it was just intriguing. Now, what the law amounted to was eugenics and sterilization to breed a pure race, and mm. that sort of sounds familiar, I'm sure. It does. But this law allowed sterilization based on the erroneous scientific principles that socially undesirable behaviors were inherited. And those behaviors included poverty, homelessness, 
immorality and criminality as well as mental illness and mental retardation. And as a result of that law, from 1927 to 1972, over 60,000 mandated sterilizations occurred, and 8,300 of those were patients or inmates, I would call them, residing at an institution then known as Virginia Colony. And these children, more or less, had been diagnosed as probable parents of socially inadequate offspring, and then judged by the state as defective and unfit to reproduce, and they were operated on. Wow. That's, yes, a, that's a story that's not well known at all. No, it isn't, and that's why I wanted it to be known. And I had my driving message, and I had learned something that I wanted the world to know, and I wanted to know who wrote these laws and how widespread they were. And I learned that by 1941, 30 states had adopted the law. And then what I am about to say will probably be shocking to you as it was to me when I discovered it, that Hitler's campaign for a pure race had its beginning not in Germany, but right here in the United States of America in the state of Virginia. Stunning. The model was that Racial Purity Act, and it was authored by Professor Harry Laughlin of Virginia. As I say, it was adopted by Hitler for his Purarian Society, and in 1936, Hitler awarded Laughlin an honorary doctorate from the Heidelberg University for his contribution to race purity. Amazing. Now, J.B., explain, was, explain, the, explain the story behind or the, the, the meaning behind the dagger in the cup. How does that fit into your, your research? Okay, the dagger in the cup. I go off uh, with this book is what I call faction. Like I just said, it is based on a lot of facts. But my protagonist, I needed a protagonist that was a simple mountain girl with a, des- with a desire to learn despite her uh, stepfather's objection and brutality and her total isolation from society because she lived in the mountains all of her life. She was, the protagonist is uh, 16 years old. But I wanted her to allow the reader to traverse the mountains, you know, with her and to uh, to learn of the mountain ways. She, her stepfather, kidnaps her. He's a very cruel man, kidnaps her, takes her there. He fabricates a story that will ensure that she will be imprisoned there at the institution uh, for the feeble-minded and epileptic. Now, she is, she, that is Shug Yoakum? Is that her name? Yes, that's Shug Yoakum, yes. I had to, she had to be strong. She had to be very strong to uh, overcome her uh, obstacles as well as to protect the rights of others and to care enough to protect the rights of others. So she, being kidnapped and, and taken from her family, which she loved so very much, her mother and her uh, two stepbrothers and um, two half, uh, half-brother and a half-sister, and she had to get back to them, and she does escape there. And the dagger in the cup actually comes from when she is, she has no idea how to get to her home because it's up in the mountains. She, it was nighttime when they went up there, when they moved uh, into the mountains from Georgia, um, which is a long story. But uh, she comes across this very strange woman. Her name is Enid, which actually means spirit. And she lives in the mountains. She's from Ireland. She lives there by herself, and she read Suge's tea leaves. Mm-hmm. And so the tea leaves showed that Suge 
had many obstacles. She was in danger. There was a dagger. Tea leaf readers see things that we wouldn't be able to see. There's a certain way that the way that the leaves fall on the around the cup in the bottom, the forms that they take, how high up, or how close to the handle they are, just a whole bunch of things. But anyway, there was this dagger in the cup. And from then on, Suge um, really had a battle to, uh, to fight. And um, she was told, her reading told her, or Enid told her, that she must return to the institution, to the place where her life would, or her motherhood would be, um, she, she would be in danger of having this operation because that's what they did to these teenage children. So, but anyway, she does go back, not of her own accord, and the woman, uh, Enid told her that there are two women you must find to right the wrong done them. And when she returns to institution, of course, she has no idea. There's over 2,000 there, and who would, who would these two women be? She almost becomes hopeless because how do you find two women that has been wronged? As far as she saw it, every one of them there had been wronged. So it's a remarkable ending, and she does find these two women, and they are connected to her in ways that she could never have imagined, and it's, and it's quite astounding, actually. And yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll revert back to her stepfather. In addition to this being a fiction based on factual research, was there a storyline in here that is exciting, or would you call it character-driven? Any action scenes? Oh, I have lots of action scenes. I have an action scene that shows Shug's, uh she's fearless in the face of danger when it comes to protecting her family and her mother, and she actually, uh, to protect her half-brother, little four-year-old half-brother, she uh, faces a bear, a mother bear, uh, because the, the dog, the, the dog had gotten, had killed a cub, her cub and had come and, and rubbed against the little boy. So mm-hmm. the mother bear was seeking justice for her, her little dead cub. And, but Suge gets the bear's attention and takes, takes on the bear herself. And luckily, one of her brothers is coming down from the mountains, had been hunting, and uh, and does manage to shoot it, but not after she gets sort of clawed. And there's several scenes where there's a lot of action, there's a lot of intrigue, and a lot of mystery, and it was a fun book to write. In describing your, your ideal reader, is there someone you had in mind when you were composing the contents of your book? I don't really think that I, I did. I, what I think that it appeals to, or who I think it appeals to, I think it appeals to almost anyone. I was quite surprised that my husband loved it because, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. And uh, other men who have read it who are, you know, in their 60s or 70s mm-hmm. or whatever uh, have loved it. Anyone from the mountains that that loves or someone that loves the outdoors and teenagers, you know, I mean, because she's a very strong heroine. I just think it appeals to just about anyone. I'm, you know, getting some good reviews, you know, uh, people who've read it and even people who don't usually read that genre. Uh, well, you're not a, you're, you're not a fresh 
out of the uh, out of the box uh, novelist. You've written other books, so this one is, I would say, uh, an addendum or an addition to the four other books that you've been involved with. Did you, as you are writing, come up with a storyline and then flesh it out, or did you just sit down and have this inspired idea and begin writing? I had the idea, I had my message, and I wanted to tell it in a way where it would be very entertaining. People would remember the character, but they would remember what the character revealed. What is the underlying message that you were trying to portray? Oh, I had actually several messages. I think that I wanted to say, you know, like, be kind to others, no matter who you are, where you come from, rich or poor. Hang on to your dreams. Should gave up the dream of being a doctor only to have it ironically handed back to her as a result of her stepfather's vengeful action. Interesting. Uh, and don't judge people by the color of their skin. You know, I mean, Shinoa at, uh, at the uh, institution was a Cherokee Indian, but she lived as a, a Negro while at the institution because at that time, it was illegal to be an Indian at the, uh, at the, um, in Elmhurst, Virginia. And, you know, I mean, I, I tried to point that out. And, and then the first law of nature is self-preservation. And one of my characters went to the nth degree to save herself and to get back to her children. And she had more drive, but the problem was that by the time that she got out of her situation, she had, it was so traumatic to her, she lost uh, the memory of her past and of her children, and um, she did not regain that until Shug helped her. As an aside, um, as an aside, you mentioned the Native American culture were banned from parts of Virginia. Was that enforced during your research? Did you find that out? I did not find it out. You can go, when you start this research, you can go on so many different paths, and I have a propensity to to go in different directions, <laughs> and it's hard to focus. I right. never really found that out. It would be very interesting to do that. It would be an interesting story in itself, absolutely would be. In introducing yes, this book to someone in a couple of sentences, what would be the approach you would use? Oh, goodness. Uh, Jay, that's a, that's a toughie. That's dagger uh, in the cup. What? would you say to someone you know I, you just dumped me on this one would you, would you start it <laughs> off by would you start it off by saying this is a mystery adventure based on factual history it is an adventure of mystery and intrigue based on facts yes it's absolutely the page, pages are jammed packed with uh with intrigue i had when i first began writing some 20-some years ago, I had a very uh, good literary agent, New York literary agent, who said, if you want a character to be remembered, put that character up in a tree and throw rocks. <laughs> and, and there must be conflict on every page. Really? Yes. So I have, whether it's mental conflict or physical conflict, you need conflict on every page. So that's what I've done, and uh, that's why I think it's absolutely uh, an intriguing book because it does have some of the mountain uh, lore in it, such as the uh, the strange woman who lives up there. And as a matter of fact, she, she's a brief character, but she's one of my favorites. And uh, I found that other people think her is one of their favorites, too. Intriguing advice you received from that book agent. 
Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Fabulous. Uh, He's a a wonderful agent. Uh, Worked with him for quite a few years. He's acknowledged in in my um, acknowledgments of this book because he was a great teacher, is a great teacher, and um, learned by everything that he ever said. Dagger in the Cup took you more than just a uh, fortnight to write. You spent a few years actually doing the research and putting the story together. Were there other challenges in getting this to print? I had uh, a lot of challenges in those years. Uh, it would have everything if I had not had to uh, jump over hurdles in uh, in writing this. It would have been done a lot of years ago. But uh, I, my husband's mother was very ill, and I was basically uh, the one to see to her needs. And she was later into a uh, nursing home, and then. Uh, my husband developed uh, multiple myeloma cancer, and uh, not only was he facing death, but I was taking care of my 92-year-old mother who has dementia and uh, struggling through uh, years of, of that. Actually, I had my mom for seven years and uh, went through that, and then I lost uh, a few good friends, three or four good friends, and uh, it was just hard to find time to write, uh, especially with my mom meeting me 24 hours a day, Uh, but my brother, thank goodness, uh, took over and helped me uh, to get the time to finish this novel up, which actually only happened last year. Um, Well, delighted that you were able to complete this, and a lot of personal challenges that you foraged and forwarded through, and and uh, completed before the novel was completed. Uh, the title of the book, again, is Dagger in the Cup. And our author, and this is not her first novel, she's written several others, is J.B. Hamilton Queen. J.B., where do our listeners get copies of your book? They can get copies uh, from Amazon and from my website, jbhamiltonqueen.com. Uh, any bookseller... Uh, can be ordered through them. JB, thank you for sharing time with me this morning, and congratulations on completing the book finally and uh, giving it to us so that we can enjoy it. The title again is Dagger in the Cup. And for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.